Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Jessica Dorfman-Jones. Her memoir, Clonopin Lunch, has just come out in paperback, and I'm delighted to be able to talk with her about it today. Thank you so much. Hi. Hey. This memoir covers a kind of a short period in your life. It's not one of these wide-ranging, you know, from childhood all the way up to the present day. It, it, it focuses in on a very specific time, maybe about a year, two years altogether? It's about two and a half years okay. altogether. But yes, it is a short, you know, blip. Yeah. And that two and a half year blip was a really transformative blip for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And not always, as we'll find out in the course of the conversation, in very positive ways. But let's right. start with where you were in your life when, you know, when the scene opens. Sure. And I think you're right. Blip is uh, an understatement. The story begins, you know, I, I was raised in Manhattan and a product of all girls private school, very preppy upbringing, very high expectations for, for me and of me. Let's see. I got a law degree. I got married young and I was invested in the idea of succeeding by following the what you should do model of living your life. So anything that was an outward sign of success was something that I felt I had to you know check off the list for myself, for my family, just you know represent properly. You were working at a dot com in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yes, and I was. As it was for many of us working in dot coms in 2000, uh, the writing was on the wall. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it was. Right. So like you and your best friend at, at this place are waiting for the axe to fall and kind of hitting that, I guess, what is now sort of called a quarter life crisis where, you know, it's too young to be a midlife crisis. Right. right. And that that phrase didn't exist at the time. So so I was apparently breaking some ground mm -hmm. by melting down so early. But yes, <laughs> it started innocently enough as like the two of you decided, it's like, you know, we should learn to play guitars. Right. That's exactly it. We we were bored out of our minds. And my very good friend who I shared an office with live right across the street from a guitar store where all of the guys who worked there also gave lessons. So she was already aware of the whole opportunity, the, the setup, how it would work. And she had a bee in her bonnet and she was going to drag me into it, whether I liked it or not. She went first. She did. Mm -hmm. She found an instructor for both of us, same guy. She went first and enjoyed it enormously, but called me right afterwards to tell me to cancel the lesson, ASAP. Why would she do that? Knowing me as well as she did, I'd say that she knew me better than I knew myself. She knew that I had been restless in this perfect on-paper life for quite some time, and she'd seen me act out in minor ways, but those minor ways were so numerous. You know, they added up quite clearly to her as something that was probably ready to blow and that I was going to have some kind of catharsis. She knew that this guitar teacher was the quintessential bad boy and that the quintessential bad boy had been 
an ongoing weakness of mine for life. Your you know, immediate reaction is basically like, come on, I'm 30 years old. I can handle myself. I'm not going to like go nuts just because some guy shows up and he's cute. And then the guy shows up and you pretty much lost it right there, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> After leading a life of should and being so controlled, the idea that I would lose control was beyond me. Being wound tightly, knowing how I could manipulate every situation so that I would achieve properly and look respectable was top of the list. And it, it, it just didn't occur to me that I would be blindsided by life. And yes, you're absolutely right. He showed up on my doorstep and I unraveled immediately. And my friend turned out to know me, as I said, far better than I knew myself. It was an instantaneous meltdown. And that unraveling is basically the bulk of the narrative here in the memoir. And it was pretty total. It's, it, it sounds like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you, yes. you, you, didn't, you didn't just dip your toe into this water. You, you, you kind of cannonball here. I told you I was an achiever. Mm -hmm. If I was going to do something, I would do it right and totally. So, yes, I, I did not dip my toe in the waters of crazy. I, I plunged in head first. Part of the, the difficulty in reading Clonop and Lunch for some people Maybe in that, you know, the kind of honesty about where your marriage was at that point mm -hmm. in terms of being able to, I mean, I, I won't just say turn on a dime because, I mean, it took a long time for, for all this to happen. But in terms of a trajectory of not just unraveling your professional life, what it which in a large case was beyond your control, mm -hmm. but unraveling your personal life and, and, and your marriage which certainly were within your control to to ravel or to unravel, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. Although it didn't necessarily feel like it. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Yeah, it is, it is one's responsibility at the end of the day. And what I found so interesting after writing the book and having so many years between the events that took place and the actual writing and editing, you know, just to to see how that I at the time felt so completely out of control and at the mercy of my feelings and and what other people were doing and I was living very reactively and it, it took 10 years of this this interim and doing the book to realize that everything was a choice big growing up lesson in a lot of memoirs the narrative arcs seem to be either, you know, all these terrible things happened to me and I persevered and overcame them and my life is in a better place now. Right. Or, man, I did a lot of really screwed up things, but now my life is in a better place and, and so on. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit more, man, I did a lot of screwed up things. You don't really focus on the, the turnaround mm -hmm. at all. It, it, this is pretty much all... A downhill ride. Well, first, I'll, I'll start by saying, as you may or may not know, I've been in the publishing business for a very long time, and I've not only read my share of memoirs, but I've read my share of proposals and everything that doesn't make it. And I always found the part that says how wonderful life is to be extraordinarily boring. I think that if you're going to tell your story and you have a narrative arc where there's some catastrophic moment and then you go through a process 
just to say, look, I'm better now is it's sufficient. And the decision to write the book is such an obvious decision to have an exorcism or a catharsis that I don't need to know as a reader precisely what happened afterwards. You know, what I always want to know is what happened, why did you do what you did, and did you did you come away with anything at all? And, you know, is it a good story? You know, memoirs, memoirs that constantly go on and on about, you know, I did this, then I did this, and I did this, and it was all difficult. Who cares? I feel like it has to be a ripping read as well. And so that's part of the no-holds-barred uh, approach to writing this and, and letting it linger on the, the, the crazy. And then there's maybe there's also this sense that, and here's how I turned my life around and things are so much better now, and I'm really a good person, love me. Whereas, I mean, there's a line in Klonopin Lunch that I want to pull up here. You know, you pretty much lay out the the whole theme here. I was so unintentionally and casually cruel that thinking about it will always make me cringe. I did it out of abject fear, confusion, and a horribly selfish brand of self-preservation. The ability to cast yourself, I mean, essentially as the villain in mm -hmm. this piece, without any overt or extended attempt at turning it around and saying, but I'm really a nice person. I mean, because the whole point of this book is that for two and a half years, you were not a nice person. Exactly. Right. And I, I think that saying it any other way would have been false. The whole point of writing this book was to tell the truth. To tell the truth for me. To tell the truth for my readers. You know, I was very interested in the idea when I started writing the book that there were not that many memoirs where women talked about things that women normally don't talk about. There wasn't anything else I could find about the gory details of having an affair and ruining your marriage. I couldn't find anything that just unapologetically said, sometimes we're all crap and that's life. You have to live with it. Part of, of the reality of it is that there are going to be lots of people who don't forgive you and don't like you. I didn't think it would be honest to ask a readership to to love me. I wanted to just tell the facts and let people come to their own conclusions. Obviously, with something like this, it acts as a mirror. You know, and, and the reactions that I got, and I knew this would be the case, but I was really fascinated by how very much the case this was. But it was a very polarizing book, and the responses were either you saved me, thank you for talking about something that I was too ashamed to talk about, or my favorite, favorite review that I always talk about whenever I do any publicity or any talk about the book. Um, there's a woman on Amazon who, I think the title of her review was Appalling, and then she suggested that I die of a hideous form of cancer, and if that didn't get me, a bus should. And I thought, well, and the best part was that she finished the book. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, if you hated it so much, put it down. But there was something gripping, something educational, whatever it was, that this person who was filled with bile still, you know, wanted to, made her want to finish it. And mm -hmm. I think that's what it, I think that's what memoirs are supposed to be about, that it's, you share your life and it's partly educational for other people to either not feel alone or to see how the other half lives 
And you can't apologize for your life. It is. It just is. How hard is it, having made the decision that you're going to tell this story, no punches pulled on yourself, no redeeming ending, to actually dig in and look back at this period? You know, not just revisiting it, but setting it out that honestly. To sit there with the, the you know the keyboard and the screen, and tell yourself it's like okay, I this is what I have to do. It was an evolution. A lot of the things that happened during that two and a half year period were so outrageous that pretty soon thereafter, I wound up, I think, for my own sanity, making them into making those anecdotes into fun cocktail party chatter, and they all had great punchlines and. That was fun. And I knew that those stories always were very gripping. And so when I started writing the book, the very, very first version of the book was not really about me. It was about my boyfriend with whom I was having this affair mm -hmm. and about how he was such a crazy person and how he was nuts and blah, blah, blah. I had all of these stories where I could use him as the punchline. And as I started writing, I realized how unfair that was and that, in fact, everything was about me. That's when it got serious. I found it extremely difficult to have that transition from writing about, you know, a, a bad boy boyfriend to saying, no, he wasn't so bad. You're the one who sought out something that would change your life. There were moments that were revelations and answered questions for me that I had shoved aside for years and years, and other parts that were so embarrassing that I could barely type it, but I knew that if I felt that way, that's probably the good stuff, so I persevered. And the thing that was the most important was doing the rewrites and I had the best editor imaginable. Julia Pastore at Crown took, and I think I said this in the acknowledgments, she took a tangle of emotional insanity and helped me to tweeze out the narrative arc and live that story again in a way that was coherent and, and would affect an audience. One of the things that struck me as kind of noteworthy about the narrative arc is that over the course of this you know, two and a half year period, it seems like, or at least it feels like, pretty much everybody in New York City knows that you're having an affair with this guy, except your husband. Well, he knew. Okay. I mean, this is, this is my feeling about extramarital affairs, and I certainly learned this. I learned this the hard way. The person who is being cheated on always knows. Whether or not that person is in touch with that knowledge is another story. But intuitively, people know when the person they live with has changed the patterns of their behavior, when they simply have a different set of moods that they're displaying or mood swings something changes and there's just there's just no way to hide it and my husband did know and in the part of the book where i explain how he found out by walking in on us we were already separated and it was a night when he was not supposed to be in the loft the lights were on so i was clearly there and i had just gotten my dog 
he came into the apartment with the excuse to himself that he wanted to check on the dog. There was no reason to do that. I was home. It was his subconscious way of saying, I've had enough. So if I have to do this horrible and hard thing, I'm going to, to put an end to it. And, and he did. And to his credit, he did. He pulled the plug, you know, and, and I couldn't. I guess there is that scene earlier where, as you're talking about separating, where you basically, in dancing around the issue, say, oh, I need my space. And, and he says, like, well, I kind of could see that you needed your space, so mm -hmm. I've been giving you your space. And it's, I mean, when you put it in that context, it's clear that it, or clearer that, okay, he, he knows, but neither one of you are actually going to come out and say it, so you're just going to keep doing this dance for a little bit longer. Ah, I, I think that nobody wants to be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. I had no genuine animosity towards my husband. I was just in a situation that I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to hurt him. But of course, I was hurting him horribly. I just couldn't say it. And I think there's always this hope, this, this futile hope on both sides of this sort of situation that it will just go away. It will, time will solve it. It will cure itself. And people don't acknowledge that by the time you've gotten to that point, the cure is very hard to find. And it certainly doesn't happen spontaneously. There's a point at which you're fed up with his emotional passiveness mm -hmm. or lack of responsiveness with you to the situation and he agrees to go to therapy at your insistence he does a couple of sessions and then comes to you and says oh my therapist wants to talk and wants me to ask you something and you're like okay fine what is it and he says why am i in therapy my therapist wants me to ask you why i'm in therapy one of the things that struck me about that scene is that it's like i mean you go ballistic because you're like what the hell do you mean why are you in therapy whereas you know, once I got past that part of the scene, it's like the subtext of that seems to be that it's like whether or not he needs to be in therapy, his therapist is clearly picking up on, on the idea that it's like, well, is there something going on with Jessica that she thinks that he ought to yeah, he ought to be dealing with this? So what's going on there? That occurred to me 10 years later as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, that's it's true. And I look at the way that I embraced that moment as my breaking point, mm -hmm. as, you know, it, it was almost arbitrary. I was just waiting for something to be the breaking point. So I was willfully blind to the the other side of that question. And it touches on something that, that also comes up. You know, one of the big absences from this book is any hint of therapy on your part, which sort of raises the question, were you... In any kind of therapy at all during this time? At the very beginning, I was. And like most people who are not ready to deal with what they're doing, I and who are in therapy, I decided that my therapist was terrible. So I stopped seeing her. And it was only after the final events unfolded uh, that I was ready to address what was going on and, and then did the therapy cleanup afterwards there isn't really the redemptive back swing in the story but you do allude to the fact that you feel that having been through this experience is one of the things that freed up 
a creative urge within you because part of what was going on during this whole thing is that while you were taking guitar lessons from the guy you were having an affair with, you were playing in a band and writing songs. And part of the tailspin or, or, or coming out of the tail end of this is that this is really sort of what set you on the path of writing. It did. It set me on the path of writing, but more essentially, it was an experience that stripped me of every way in which I had identified myself previously. And I certainly can't say that it was planned. It, it, that was not a conscious intention. But after having led a life of shoulds, as I described before, I lived in such a fringe way during that time that I was really testing the boundaries of everything I held sacred. Absolutely everything. And I found out years later from the guy with whom I had the affair, and he was, I thought, was very fringe and very out there, that I scared him because I had so few boundaries. So interestingly, I was really much, much more out there than I even thought. So what this really was, was it was self-immolation in order to rebuild. And if I had kept anything of my life and my my decision-making process and my moral compass and all of that from everything up until 30, I wouldn't have been able to rebuild something that felt real and true. And from real and true comes, okay, you know, you've been dancing around being a writer for so long. You've been an agent. You've been a packager. You've been PR. You, da, da, da. Just stop it and write. And that's really what came out of it. I also noticed that this is your second book and that your first book was, it's a handbook to cheating, basically. And it, it almost feels like, I mean, looking at this with the, the the gift of hindsight, it almost feels like that was sort of like dealing with these things one step removed, almost. I think that's very possibly true. The, the way that The Art of Cheating came into being was that as a book packager, I was receiving so many proposals for self-help books that I was just inundated and rolling my eyes. And my business partner and I decided that it would be funny to do a self-help book about how to be a complete jerk. And we asked a lot of different people to try writing it for us. You know, that's what we did. We hired people to execute our concepts. And we couldn't find the right person. And to your point... I realized that I couldn't find the right person because I only heard my own voice in telling, not the tale, because it's really just prescriptive, but relaying those cheats. And, and to be clear, those are not all sexually related cheats. They're, mm -hmm. you know, taxes and card games and all of that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's almost as if, and again, this is imposing a, a narrative on something that may not have a narrative, but... You know, this sort of sense that's like, well, what makes you such an expert on cheating? Let me tell you a story. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, to my horror, at one point, there were some agents who wanted to represent me. And they said, you can be the, the cheating lady. And I thought, good God, I don't want to be branded as the cheating lady for the rest of my life. There's more to this. So where do you go from here in terms of your writing well, I, I told my, I have the most wonderful literary agent in the world, and he's a friend, and we spent a lot of time talking about the wisdom of writing Clonop and Lunch, and, you know, that I chose to also write it with a great sense of humor, which worked 
to either entertain and really draw people in or really piss people off that I was able to have a sense of humor about some of the worst stuff that was going on. And what I was trying to show by just being myself in the way that I told that story was that sometimes the only way to survive the worst, most destructive moments in your life is with humor. You're not going to survive if you can't laugh at yourself. And I think that my ability to laugh at myself was either really endearing or really disgusting for people. But we talked about the wisdom of doing that. And when we were talking about it, I kept saying to him, I want to write this for other women. I really want to write this for other women. And we talked about my inclination to always ask questions about other people. I always want to know what everyone else is doing. I'm the ultimate yenta. So we talked about, you know, so going back to this branding concept, you know, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm really a sociologist without a degree in sociology. I'm, I'm a pop sociologist. So Clonop and Lunch really turned out to be sort of a test balloon for this idea of pop sociology. I put myself out there first. And I think that will work to my advantage because if I'm willing to be that honest about myself, the people I work with in the future, I hope, will know that I'm genuine in my intentions and, you know, there's nothing about hurting anyone. It's just, let's talk. Let's get it out there. So the next book is going to be, it's, it's based on the reactions that I got to Clonop and Lunch and that I was really surprised at how many, and let me just interject that all of the men who responded to the book liked it or were at worst lukewarm. They were never crazed against it. It was only women. And I thought, this is what's interesting. I put it out there, but the conversation that it's engendered is what's, it's what's fascinating. And that apparently nice girls don't talk about this. So my next book is about, it's really, it's a cross country trip interviewing women and figuring out what nice girls are not supposed to say and why and how we feel about that and still doing it with a sense of humor because again that's just how I process stuff but the idea that in this day and age nice girls don't say that is really weird to me and I want to get to the bottom of it and and I was also prompted to do this when I was taking a flight from LA to New York and there was a very attractive, very pulled together young woman in the seat in front of me with her husband. And she asked him as we were boarding to please get her book out of her bag in the overhead. He did. He handed it to her and it was, the cover was, was covered in contact paper. So you couldn't see what it was. And I immediately knew what it was and I couldn't help myself. And I leaned over and said, excuse me, are you reading Fifty Shades of Grey? And she blushed and said, yes. And I said, well, why, why did you cover the cover? Everyone is reading it. You know, it's not a big deal. And she said, you know, smiling, I don't know. I just, I just thought I shouldn't let people know. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is, this is the next book. I guess we'll have a whole section there on uh, the Fifty Shades. Absolutely. I think the Fifty Shades phenomenon was incredible. And what I also thought was amazing was that, you know, that book was out when Clonop and Lunch came out. And, you know, that was a runaway hit and didn't challenge people's view of themselves. And my book was 
not anywhere near as filled with sex. Maybe some of the sex was graphic, but I had only like four moments that were truly sexual in the book. And mine elicited this response of, you know, either love it or hate it. You know, the role of Fifty Shades of Grey in getting women to talk about their sex lives, even with each other, I think is worth a huge amount of investigation. And I'm sure it will come up in every interview that I do <laughs> during this trip. Well, that sounds like a project to look forward to. And in the meantime, there is Clonic and Lunch, which I have been talking about with Jessica Dorfman-Jones here in this episode of Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I'm glad that you've been listening, and I hope that you'll come back for another episode sometime soon. Thank you.